taking a little break from Ephesians. Um, I'm going to do something a little bit different today. In fact, today, I want to know if you guys have ever been on a road trip before. You guys ever been on a road trip? Road trips are pretty popular in the United States. In fact, one article I read suggested that on average, 2.29 million uh, billion domestic trips are taken annually in the United States. And there's an estimated 79.6 million uh, non-U.S. citizens who visit the United States every year. That's a lot of people making a lot of trips. And many of those trips are road trips. And just to be clear, a road trip is essentially a journey taking, taken by a group or an individual, usually in a car on a road, just in case you didn't know. Hence the name road trip. And typically, there's a lot of stops during these road trips that people make. They want to remember things. They take pictures or take videos. Some people write in their journals. These days, people post all the details of their trips on social media so everyone will know exactly you know, what they ate for lunch and dinner and, and how often they needed to go to the bathroom, <laughs> etc. The funny thing about road trips is that they can be some of the most amazing times that a family spends together. Um, or they can be a nightmare really, really fast uh, if things don't go right. People often share those mishaps along with the good times. Things like, we found the cutest little bed and breakfast on our trip. We could have stayed longer, but my husband's long cut added four hours to our drive. <laughs> well, the picture of the hotel was astonishing. Nothing like the actual hotel, which charged by the hour and was using its swimming pool as a bacterium-growing science project. <laughs> or everybody's favorite, getting directions from the locals. It turned out to be some kind of joke, like, like y'all just head down the road till you get to Old Smoky. That's the big oak tree about three miles out. Boy, that tree's been there forever. Then head on down to the intersection, take a left, nope, nope, take a right. Then you should see the barber shop. If not, turn around, it must have been left. And bam, you're back on the highway. I've taken a lot of road trips through the years, and regardless of them being good or bad, I usually feel pretty good about getting home afterwards. And today we're going to take a little road trip, not in the physical sense, not out there in the world, but right here in our Bibles. Some of you may be familiar with this road trip, and some of you may have taken others on this journey. This road trip is called the Roman's Road to Salvation. This journey is a collection of Bible verses that are used to share the good news about God's plan of salvation for all people. As you've likely guessed, the Romans Road uses verses from the Apostle Paul's letter to the Romans, which some scholars have called the Constitution of Christianity. And one of the reasons the Apostle Paul wrote this epistle was to teach fundamental doctrine or core Christian beliefs. And each of the stops on this road today will do just that. So open your Bibles up to the book of Romans. And our first stop on the Romans road is Romans chapter 3, verse 23. Romans three twenty-three: For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. In order to fully understand this verse, we need to ask some very important questions. And the first question is, what is sin? What is sin? According to 1 John 3, 4, whoever commits sin also commits 
lawlessness, and sin is lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. Lawlessness essentially means a disregard for the law. We should all be somewhat familiar with this concept as we see lawlessness happening all the time in our country. From people speeding down the road to people committing murder. According to John, people who disregard laws are sinners. There are numerous laws in the United States. Some primary sources are things like constitutional law, statutory law, treaties, administrative regulations, and common law. And admittedly, some laws seem stupid. Like, supposedly, in Alabama, you're prohibited to open an umbrella on the street. You're not allowed to play dominoes on Sunday. You're not allowed to throw confetti or spray silly string. And one of my favorites is from Alaska, which is that flamingos are not allowed in barbershops. <laughs> while these laws are pretty stupid, the fact that they are laws means that violating them would demonstrate a deliberate disregard for them. And that could have consequences. Now, I don't know exactly what would happen if you walked into a, an Alaskan barbershop with a flamingo. I don't know what they would do, but because it's a law, you could face some kind of punishment. On a side note, though, really quick, do you guys know why flamingos stand on one leg? Because it would fall if it lifted both. All right. In a spiritual sense, though, in a spiritual sense, sin is lawlessness to God's commands and or instructions as laid out in the Bible. For simplicity's sake, I want to highlight four ways people sin. Four ways people sin. First, we sin when we do things we are not supposed to do. When we do things that we are not supposed to do. First John 4.20, if someone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother, whom he has seen, how can he love God whom he has not seen? Having hate in our hearts towards others is sinful. And it's something we should not do. We sin when we don't do things that we are supposed to do. We sin when we don't do things that we are supposed to do. Luke 6.31 And just as you want men to do to you, you also do to them likewise. Are you treating people the way that you want to be treated. And then if not, you are not doing something you're supposed to do. We sin when we think things that we should not think. Matthew 5, 28. But I say to you that whoever looks at a woman to lust for her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Are you thinking about things that you shouldn't be thinking about? And four, we sin when we say things that we should not say. When we say things that we should not say. Proverbs 18.21, death and life are in the power of the tongue, and those who love it will eat its fruit. Are you saying things that you should not be saying? 
And the second question is, who has sinned? Who has sinned? Notice the verse says, all have sinned, which means the whole quantity. If you have 10 candy bars and you eat 10 candy bars, you have eaten all the candy bars, right? And in this case, the Bible is referring to the whole quantity of people or humankind who are guilty of sin. This includes you. This includes me. This includes our children. This includes all people, the whole quantity. There's a famous Christian minister and evangelist named Ray Comfort, who has written a lot of books. He's been on TV. He's been in the movies. And he developed this sort of quiz on sin, which I think is useful because it addresses a person's concern of whether they are a sinner. Essentially, you have to answer no to all, the whole quantity, of the following questions, which are based on the Ten Commandments in Exodus 20 and the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapters 5 through 7. These questions are helpful because oftentimes people don't like to think of themselves as sinners. Instead, they use language like, well, I'm a pretty good person. I've never killed anybody. And so these 10 questions, which I'm going to read, should help to put things into perspective. First, has anyone or anything ever been more important to you than God? Has anything ever been more important to you than God? Have you ever worshipped anyone or anything other than God? Have you ever used the name of God as a cuss word? Or without respect? Have you ever worked for seven days in a row, neglecting to take a day of rest? Have you ever disobeyed or failed to honor your parents? Have you ever hated another person or called someone a fool just to hurt his or her feelings? Have you ever engaged in immoral thoughts or actions? Have you ever stolen anything, including time or property that belongs to another? Have you ever lied? Have you ever been greedy or wanted something that belonged to someone else? Basically, if you answer yes to any of the questions, you have violated God's commandments and are a sinner and have failed to meet God's standards of perfection. And just as a side note, if you answered no to all the questions or any of the questions, ask your wife or husband to go through the list with you later and see if the results change. Everyone is guilty of sin, according to the Bible. The third question is whether being a sinner is really that big of a deal or not. Is it really that big of a deal? I mean... So what if we're just going five miles an hour over the speed limit? That doesn't seem like that big of a deal. And what's the worst that can happen, right? To answer this question, we have to get back on the Romans road and head to the second stop. On this stop, we're going to look at the first part of Romans 6.23. The first part of Romans 6.23, which says, For the wages of sin is death. And so we have identified what sin is and that we're all guilty of it. And now we see that the wages of sin is death. And we need to look 
at this more closely. It's easy to understand what a wage is, right? Especially for those of us that work jobs, right? Essentially, you go to work, you provide some sort of service or function, and then you get a paycheck. That's your wage for your work. There's an output based on your input, work in, money out. Our verse states that the wages of sin is death. So if the input is sinfulness, then the output is death. The output is death. Well, this is troubling because we know we have all, the whole quantity, sinned. And this passage says that the output is death. What is meant by death? Don't all people die anyways? This is important because it turns out there are two types of death. Physical death and spiritual death. The physical death that all people will experience is the separation of a person's body from their soul. This will happen, has happened, and will continue to happen this side of eternity to everyone. Unless we get raptured, but that's not the point today. This physical death is a result of Adam and Eve eating from the tree of knowledge of good and evil. In Genesis 2.17, God told Adam that if he did this, he would surely die. And he did eat the forbidden fruit. Since then, everyone, including Adam, has died a physical death with a couple of exceptions, but we're not going to get into that either today. Spiritual death is the separation of the soul from God. It's a separation of the soul from God, usually referred to as eternal death, meaning that not only did Adam and Eve begin the dying process physically, but they also became spiritually dead. Their relationship with God was terminated and they were separated from him. This is the type of death being referred to in our Romans Road trip. Our input of sin has the output of eternal death, a separation from God forever. So the question was, is being a sinner really that big of a deal? Well, let's see. If a person is left in this sinful state, they will eventually die a physical death, and they will die a spiritual death because that is the wage for lawlessness and for this group of lawbreakers. Matthew 25, 41. Then he, Jesus, will also say to those on the left hand, these are the unforgiven sinners, depart from me, you cursed, into the everlasting fire prepared for the devil and his angels. Is going to hell a big deal? Everlasting fire prepared for the devil and his angels. This is literally the biggest deal of all deals. Hell is not a joke and it's not temporary. It's permanent. Notice everlasting fire. That means fire lasting forever is a big deal. C.S. Lewis said this about hell. There is no doctrine which I would more willingly remove from Christianity than the doctrine of hell if it lay in my power. But it has the support of Scripture 
and especially of our Lord's own words, it has always been held by the Christian church, and it has the support of reason. So let's do a quick recap of our road trip so far. We know that sin is breaking God's laws. We know that we are all guilty of breaking God's laws. And now we know that the penalty for breaking God's laws is being separated from him forever in hell. So far, our road trip has not been the most inspiring in our stops. But they are crucial stops to understanding where we stand in relation to God. So far, we've discovered a very serious problem. But let's keep going because we need a solution to this big problem. So let's get back on the road. The next stop on the Romans road takes us to Romans 5.8. Romans 5.8. But God demonstrates his own love toward us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Well, here we go. I mean, now we're getting somewhere. This is that point in the road trip that you start to take pictures. You start to get a little bit excited about the trip. Notice that this verse starts with but. It starts with but. All that bad stuff we've previously talked about is now being contrasted in this verse. Up until this point, it's been gloomy, bad weather. But now it looks like the sun is starting to break through. According to this verse, God has demonstrated his own love toward us while we were still sinners. Who is this talking about? Is this talking about you and me? Are you sinners? I'm a sinner. The verse is talking about all of us. God has demonstrated his love to you and to me. According to this verse, God has acted regarding this sinfulness that has plagued the entire world. God's justice is being fulfilled in someone else. The verse says that God, his demonstration of love is that Christ died for us. This is an incredible statement because up until this point, we've realized that we don't deserve anything less than hell because of our sinfulness. And in this hell-deserving condition, while still being sinners, God demonstrated his own love toward us. How? By allowing Jesus Christ to die for us. Jesus Christ took our wages of sin upon himself. He took the penalty that we deserve. There should be little explosions going off in your, your heads right now, especially if you're a non-believer. You mean to tell me that Jesus did this for us? What? Why? Why would he do this? And the simple answer, as we just read in that, is that God loves you. God loves you. He loves me. John 15, 9, Jesus says, As the Father loved me, I also loved you. Abide in my love. So what does it mean to have Jesus die for us. According to Deuteronomy 32.4, God is perfect. God is perfect and his ways are justice. So how does someone dying for us produce justice? 
In general, when someone breaks a law, they pay the penalty. That is justice. However, in this case, someone else paid the penalty. What would happen if you got caught speeding and received a ticket, but you were unable to pay the fine, and your neighbor paid it for you? Essentially, your neighbor would become your savior. He would have saved you from paying a fine that you could not pay. Well, in a spiritual sense, Jesus Christ has done just that. He's done the same thing in this case by dying for you and for us. He's paid a fine that we could not pay. See, if we pay the fine ourselves, we go to hell. If Jesus Christ, the perfect son of God, pays the fine, we have the opportunity to go to heaven debt paid. Now, that's true love. Some of you may be familiar with the name Anna Barlett Warner. She was born in New York in, in August 1827. And after her father lost a lot of money in the Great Depression, they moved to Constitution Island in the Hudson River where Anna and her sister would write short stories and poems to earn money. And she wrote one that in part goes like this. Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. Little ones to him belong. They are weak, but he is strong. Yes, Jesus loves me. Yes, Jesus loves me. Yes, Jesus loves me. The Bible tells me so. And as we have just read, Anna is right. Jesus did love her. He died for her sins. And yes, Jesus loves each one of you. He died for your sins. And he died for my sins. So what does this mean for us? We're going to circle back to one of the previous stops on the Romans road. Previously, we looked at the first part of Romans 6, 23. And now we're going to look at the second half of Romans 6, 23. Remember, the first part of the verse says, For the wage of sin is death. And now the second half, which reads, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Okay, so the trip is getting better and better. Not only did God provide us sinners an opportunity to avoid hell, but now we find out it's not just about avoiding hell, which we deserve, which is a demonstration of God's mercy, but it's also about getting something that we don't deserve, which is eternal life, which is God's demonstration of grace. Eternal life is the opposite of eternal death. Remember, we learned that eternal death was our soul being separated from God forever in hell. Eternal life is our soul being with God forever in heaven. The verse says that this is a gift, which in general means a thing given willingly to someone without payment. It's a present. And just why would God offer us this gift? This is just to see if you're paying attention. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. Because God loves you, and he loves me. 
I don't know about you guys, but in the past, I've had some trouble accepting gifts. It kind of makes me feel a little bit uncomfortable, like, like I need to repay the gesture. And so there's been some occasions that I refused gifts, sometimes for good reasons, ethical reasons, sometimes for self-conscious reasons. But regardless of what those reasons were, let me just tell you that when God offers you a gift, you take it gratefully, willingly, and quickly. There is no logical reason a person should refuse eternal life in heaven with God, especially knowing that there is no way for us to pay the fine on our own. You can't go to church enough. You can't do enough charitable deeds. There is literally nothing you can do, not even being the coolest kid on the block. And believe me, I know what that's like. <laughs> it's not enough. However, having said that, this is a personal gift, and no one should try to force anyone else to take it. This is something that you, as an individual, must decide for yourselves, because accepting this gift will alter your entire life. But let me just tell you, again, there is no other way to receive forgiveness for your sins other than through Jesus Christ. In fact, he said this in John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. A preacher from the 1700s called Jonathan Edwards once said, You contribute nothing to your salvation except the sin that made it necessary. What a statement. Let's get back on the road. We need to learn how to accept this amazing gift from God. Our next stop is Romans 10.9. Romans 10.9 says that if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. This passage may seem a bit confusing at first and is often misunderstood that our audible profession of faith is what saves us, but that's not true. Salvation is by grace through faith, not by works. Ephesians 2, 8 through 9, for by grace you have been saved through faith and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. Most scholars agree that during the time this book to the Romans was written, people who accepted Jesus and confessed him as Lord were in jeopardy of actually being killed. And so back then, if a person was willing to publicly profess their faith in Jesus Christ, they lived their life with the potential of being killed at any moment because they had demonstrated their faith publicly. So this is not making the claim that a public profession has to happen to be saved, but rather that if you believe in your heart that Jesus Christ is God and that he can forgive your sins, then you have made a very serious decision. Because once you do this, 
Once you do this, you will begin to see more clearly just how messed up we really are. John MacArthur said, confess the Lord Jesus, not a simple acknowledgement that he is God or the Lord of the universe, since even demons acknowledge that to be true. James 2.19. This is the deep personal conviction without reservation that Jesus Christ is that person's own master and sovereign. This phrase includes repenting from sin, trusting in Jesus for salvation, and submitting to him as Lord. This is the volition element of faith. In its most simple form, a confession is something you might relate to in a courtroom where someone is accused of doing something wrong. And if that person is guilty and admits to doing those things, they have essentially confessed that they are guilty. In a spiritual sense, confession is the prerequisite to repentance. First, the sinner acknowledges they are guilty, as we all are, the whole quantity of people. And it might sound something like this. Dear God, I know that I am a sinner. I have willfully violated the laws and commands you have established Notice that confession is essentially taking responsibility and admitting that we are wrong. We are admitting that we are wrong and that God is right. That God is right. Also notice that we are to confess the Lord Jesus. This essentially means to acknowledge that Jesus Christ is in fact God and that he has all, the whole quantity, of authority over you and your life. John 10, 30, I and my father are one. And notice the verse says to believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead. Luke 24, 39, behold, Jesus says, my hands and my feet, that it is I myself, handle me, and see, for a spirit does not have flesh and bone as you see I have. This is important because if God did not raise Jesus Christ from the dead, then Christianity is bogus. But this resurrection is a demonstration of the power of God, which helps us to understand that he alone has the power to raise us from the dead as well. So the whole thing might sound like this. Feel free to close your eyes and pray with me right now. Father God, I confess I am a sinner and that I deserve death. I have sinned against you, and in so doing, I have earned hell as my punishment. I don't want to go to hell. I want to have eternal life with you in heaven. And I understand that you have offered me this free gift through your son, Jesus Christ. And I want to give my life over to him. I want him to rule and reign in my heart for the rest of my life. I want you to be my Lord and my Savior. I believe that he took my sin upon himself and that he died so that I could live. And I believe that after three days he was raised from the dead and is in heaven right now. I believe, Lord that you are who you said you are, 
and that you will do all that you said you would do. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Obviously, this is just an example of a person receiving the free gift of God. This is just an overview of how a person might travel through the Bible and find and find that it may not always be smooth. It might bring about certain truths in our lives that shake us and may even scare us. But the truth is, there is nothing scarier than the thought of being separated from a loving God forever in hell. In Christian terms, accepting Jesus means to be born again. 2 Corinthians 5.17 Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. A Christian is no longer the same as he or she was prior to receiving God's forgiveness and that they are no longer lawless beings, but rather forgiven beings in route to heaven. When we die our physical deaths, our souls will be reunited with God. Here is something interesting to think about. I've heard several pastors say this, but this particular quote is from David Jeremiah. If you've been born only once, you will have to die twice. But if you have been born twice, you will only have to die once. And you may even escape that one death if Jesus returns to the earth during your lifetime. I read a story called The Escape from Everest. This event took place on May 25th, 2006, where a mountain climber was left for dead by his guides on the side of Mount Everest. The next day, his crew released a statement announcing his death. Little did they know that Hall was very much alive, but in dire circumstances. He was suffering from altitude sickness, which had caused him to become disoriented. He was left alone on the mountain with no hat, gloves, or oxygen bottles. A day later, a man and his climbing group came across Mr. Hall. This man, who was just two hours away from the peak, abandoned his Everest quest and left his party to carry the abandoned climber down to the camp at the base of the mountain, which was a four-hour trek. Just a day before, another climber died 1,000 feet from the summit when dozens of people passed him by because they didn't want to risk their own Everest glory. Our Savior, Jesus Christ, has not left us alone to die. He not only wants to get us to the base camp, heaven, but he also has done all the heavy lifting. The reason for that is that we cannot be good enough to save ourselves. We cannot erase our sinfulness. Once you break a law, you can't unbreak it. The price has to be paid. And thank God he was willing to pay that price. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Acts 16.31 Jesus is not like anyone else. Jesus is greater than all who have been, who are, or who will be. He is the one who calmed the storm. Remember in Mark 4.39, Then he, Jesus, arose and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, Peace, 
be still, and the wind ceased, and there was a great calm. He healed people just by touching them. Matthew 8, 1 through 4, a leper who was an incurable man came to worship Jesus Christ and asked for healing. Verse 3 says, Then Jesus put out his hand and touched him, saying, I am willing, be cleansed. Immediately his leprosy was cleansed. He raised people from the dead. He walked on water. He miraculously fed thousands of people. And more importantly, he has the authority to forgive our sins, past, present, and future. Hebrews 8.12, For I, God, will be merciful to their unrighteousness, and their sins and their lawless deeds I will remember no more. If we will but place our trust in Jesus, confess our sins, and believe that he was raised from the dead, we will be saved. And listen, I know firsthand that it is not easy to admit that we are sinners. It's not easy to humble yourself when you've lived a life of pride and self-reliance. Most people want to be their own boss and choose their own direction in life. And let's face it, admitting that we need help makes us feel weak and vulnerable. But let me say this, there is no greater demonstration of sincerity than to express your sorrow for sin and your desire to stop doing it. 1 Peter 5.5 5, All of you be submissive to one another and be clothed with humility. For God resists the proud but gives grace to the humble. Don't allow your pride to stop you from receiving the greatest gift ever offered. Eternal life in heaven with God. Charles Spurgeon said, My hope lives not because I am not a sinner, but because I am a sinner for whom Christ died. My trust is not that I am holy, but that being unholy, he is my righteousness. My faith rests upon, not upon what I am or shall be or feel or know, but in what Christ is in what Christ has done. And in what Christ is doing now for us. Hallelujah. <laughs> Notice that during this road trip, you should have found your way home. And take it from me, just one sinner who was saved. It is good to be home. Let's pray. Holy Father God in heaven, thank you so much for Jesus. Thank you so much for not giving up on us. We are eternally grateful for your sacrifice on the cross. We are eternally grateful that you have paid our debt, that you have given us an opportunity to come home, to be with you again. It's my hope and prayer that each of us here today would know that salvation story. And if, if there's anybody here that doesn't, I pray, Lord, that you would convict their hearts to come and speak to me after the service. We don't want anybody to go to hell. I pray that you would give each of us here the courage to share the gospel with as many people as possible, as often as possible. 
As Charles Spurgeon said, Lord, we pray that if anybody is destined for hell, that they only go over our dead body. Give us the courage to speak the truth. Thank you for today and thank you for this Bible lesson. In Jesus' name, amen.